So today we will talk about the people aspect in MLOps. And we have a special guest today, Lina. Lina has over nine years of industry experience in developing scalable machine learning models and bringing them into production. She currently works as a machine learning lead engineer in the data science group of a German online bank, DKB. Did I pronounce correctly? Deutsche yes. Credit Bank. DKB, yes, that's it. Previously, she worked at Zalanda, which is one of uh, the biggest Europe uh, online fashion retailers, where she worked on a personalization model. So it was a real-time deep learning personalization model for more than 32 million users, right? Yes. I think now it's more, right? Yes, constantly growing. Zalando is popular. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, before we go into our main topic, uh, let's uh, start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yes, um, originally I'm, I was very entrepreneurial minded and I started to uh, study business and uh, I got hooked onto programming and um, basically never left and um, moved over to computer science. And since then I worked a little bit of as an architect then um, at Zalando, which was a very nice international, big, ambitious company with an awesome uh, tech culture. And since a year I've been working um, at the DKB. So basically I have a bit of a business mind coming also from web analytics and online marketing. So I'm always having a very customer centric uh, viewpoint on things, which I think makes it interesting to marry the ideas from customer orientation into engineering. That's how you know all this uh, uh, marketing stuff that we talked about. Uh, yeah, basically, it's kind of like um, the, my pet projects and interests. How, how, how can engineering get inspired by the different disciplines? Okay, so... Uh... Over, so you said you worked at, uh, as, a, as an architect at Zalando, right? No, um, that was before. Um, before. As Zalando, uh, I was worked as a, basically a research engineer. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, so let's, so for today, we're talking about uh, humans in the loop and keeping people in the loop. And uh, yeah, so when we start a project, right? So what are the important things we need to remember? What... Uh, what is the checklist that we need to, to tick the boxes before we do this? Um, so basically what I've observed over the last year is that there's no best practices yet what makes a good machine learning model. That means it can be useful to apply um, certain checklists and help your stakeholders a little bit or when you come up with your own ideas to have a framework to see is, does this make a good model uh, project? So one thing I found uh, quite useful is to write down the business case and uh, check it with the stakeholder. Basically, the stakeholder sometimes hears AI and they think, oh, this is cool self-learning system which will solve um, anything more like an automated human than a mathematical um, problem-solving engine. So what I've um, found useful is to basically formalize the business case with them in form of more like a user story and um, make sure I really understood what they want. So sometimes they say things like they think in terms of the solution. They say either, I oh, yeah, make it better. 
without really specifying because they somehow think AI doesn't need a proper business case and it does. So I need them to formalize how do they measure success? What is being optimized? What's the current way of doing it? Which kind of improvement is, would it make it worth to the project? Are you looking at 10% would make it worth having an AI model there? Um, did you consider other solutions than AI models? And also make sure they don't fall into the trap of um, hearing about a cool new AI technology and thinking where you can use it. So something like um, for my practice at Salando, people came like, okay, we want like a personalized recommender system that does this and this. And I was like, okay, but for what problem do you need that tool? Like, okay, not like I have a cool new hammer and I will hit any nail with it and the outcome will be amazing. So they, it's better when they come with a business problem. So for example, um, we have a new in carousel or a new in section with a lot of articles. We don't know which articles to present to the user. Okay, this is easy. Then I can also know how to, let's say, title this recommendation solution. So basically I recommend you have a checklist that you go through to make sure that none of these steps are skipped and you really adhere to a really good business case and have KPIs and have evaluated alternative solutions and you're all on the same page. And the other thing is sometimes they kind of use you, let's say for very experimental ideas. So, ah, you're the AI team. Can you do a something, something prototype, uh, which is not their core business. So I would always insist on having uh, providing core values because in the end, if it doesn't work, uh, it's not that bad for them. They will also not invest a lot of time in your project. So have them have some skin in the game. So you want something that is core to their business when you select uh, um, a project that really makes a difference for them if you solve it. And ideally you also ask them, will you, will you give me someone from your department, let's say you're a, a group and you work with another part of the company, will you give me capacity for this? Because if they're not willing to do this, chances are it's not that important to them. Or you need to go one step higher to get buy-in. Because in the end, if you do this, even if it works, your model works, but they, they do not have buy-in or the higher-ups in this area don't have buy-in, then you will not uh, have this successfully either bring it into production or have it have an engaged stakeholder on the other side when you want to run it. So basically have a checklist of all these things, which makes a good project. So checklist is, uh, I hope I didn't miss anything. So first you need to formalize your uh, project in the form of a business story, right? Yeah. So you don't say, I'll just make it better. You need to, to formalize success. How does success look like? Uh, which kind of improvement we're talking about? Like, is it 10%? Is it 5%? Mm -hmm. Like, if we improve it by 5%, is it worth the effort or not, right? Mm -hmm. And do you need... By 10? Do you need AI? Some things really do not need AI. Sometimes stakeholders cannot understand the difference between, let's say, a personalized pipeline or just a data pipeline, which puts some stuff together. To them, that's already an AI model so that we know the difference. So, yeah, quantify alternatives. Mm -hmm. You also said uh, you need to be specific about the business problem you're solving. Yes. So it's yeah. not just, hey, do something cool. Here is this idea, but what yeah. kind of business problem does yeah. it solve? And exactly. the closer it to the core business, the better. If it's yeah. just some cool thing that uh, some executive read uh, 
um, about something. Or we read. Sometimes I have colleagues who come, or I think like, oh, this is so cool. We should do a human algorithm. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, that rarely gives a successful product. Because in the end, you cannot explain it. You cannot give it a title. It's hard to find a UI. You have a lot of edge cases if you did not have a good business problem. So let's say I have new products and I want to rank them in a certain way. That gives me lots of ideas how to think of edge cases. But if you have a very unspecified problem, for example, personalize the ranking, then you will have a lot of weird outcomes that are very hard to fix in the end when you want to run it. So the more specified your problem is, the easier it is for you to constrain it mm-hmm. and to give it meaning and have a successful outcome in the end that everybody's happy with. Mm-hmm. Because it's just, if it's formalized, you can clearly visualize it, right? You can see yeah. the UI, you can see, yeah. maybe you can even come up with a, some sort of mock-up how would yeah. it in the product. Yeah. And when you have this understanding, when you have this visualization, even if it's in your mind, then it's easier to imagine all these uh, corner cases, right? Yes. Okay. And uh, the last thing you said that you need to get a buy-in. So you need to have yes. somebody from the business team, from the stakeholders engaged in the project. Yeah. So yeah. they need to make somebody available for your questions. And yeah. uh, maybe for uh, if you have a demo, you want to show it to them. So you need somebody available for that. If yeah. they don't give you such a person, if there is no point of contact, then maybe they don't really care about this project. Exactly. Did they miss anything? No, that's the main points. There are more points. There are some cool checklists also on the internet that I can recommend you, but these are some of the most overlooked points. That's why I mentioned them. So I recommend mm-hmm. to you, write yourself your personal checklist. Mm-hmm. So this is before you even uh, start doing anything, right? So exactly. you, have, you have an idea about something cool, and then you sit down and you spend some time in front of a Google document, Word document, whatever, uh, or maybe just uh, a notebook, a yes. notepad, and you try to write everything down. Yes. And you share it with your colleagues, with yes. your um, stakeholders, and uh, you you need to get this buy-in right before you do anything. Else. I also recommend that you pair with them to really understand their domain and the problem. It's not a bad idea to spend half a day. I mean, if the project is usually we are going after important projects, right? There's rarely a low-hanging fruit ML solution. So it's uh, also worth sitting with them. Then you you will find that you had some misunderstandings about the problem, for example. So how do you, so you mentioned, I think, one thing. So maybe I'm asking a question that you just answered that uh, the question is, how do we communicate? One thing is you just go and sit with them uh, for half a day but i think it's difficult like if, let's say i'm a data scientist how do i even talk to these business people like they speak a completely different language they care about uh, things i don't care about so i care about logistic regression they care about yeah like profit i mean example. i mean it depends a little bit how involved how evolved they are if you have a very well functioning business team who knows about user stories and who who knows their kpis and so you can just tell them you don't need to know anything about machine learning. In fact, it's better if you don't. Just describe it to me in your terms and they can prepare the document and then you can sit together and you ask your questions. If it's a stakeholder team, which is not as well um, you know, educated on um, 
user stories and how to think, how to write a good business case, you need to go sit with them more. And so basically you need to find out the business case a little bit uh, with them together. So it depends, I would say, on how mature they are. And, um, yeah, what, uh, what can we do to actually build trust between us? Because uh, it's not always that they trust us from the very beginning. So we... Uh, so how, like, I think in order to have this uh, good communication with stakeholders, they need to trust us and we need to trust them. If we speak a different language, then it's, uh, they don't understand us, we don't understand them and we don't have this trust. So how can we uh, actually have it? Um, yes, so I also find that quite uh, challenging. There's probably own books how to develop uh, stakeholder reputations. I got a very good book recommendation, if you guys care. There's uh, Rebels at Work, it's called. And uh, it's about leading change from within. So it's basically ideas how to convince people. And if you have innovative ideas, how to, how to convince other people of that. So um, things I found useful in general is um, to not talk so much about what I can do for them, but to first understand their domain and maybe help them with some of their unrelated data problems to my project. So, so sometimes they ask me things about uh, data questions they have, which are unrelated to my project, and I make myself available to be sort of a trusted expert to these people. That, of course, is only useful if you're plan working with them a bit longer, but that's uh, pretty good. And when I first talked to them, I not only focused on the upside, I focused a lot also about on their concerns. So when we talk about the business case, I am pretty sure actually that I can, these concerns are all not valid. <laughs> you know, we come and we say, they say, oh, this is going to be slow. And you're like, no, it's not going to be slow. It's, it's going to be really fast. But maybe they had some bad experiences. So what I do is um, I, I do not judge their technical knowledge or lack thereof, but I go and basically tell them like, okay, what do you think definitely shouldn't happen when we introduce a very intelligent solution here? And they say all kinds of their fears like, okay, oh, it could be very slow or um, weird things that could uh, drop entire cases, or they could say that we had also concrete concerns. For example, when I was optimizing process costs, they were saying, oh, but please, it should not reduce our sales. Let's say if you reject people because of certain process cost optimization, we do not want the overall sales volume to be rejected. And then some people who had already a bit more ideas about um, how algorithms work, they were like, okay, but now if it only learns from the past, what happens if we want to change something in the future? Are we then unable to, to change the logic? So they're they are asking questions like this, which I would never address when I pitch them, you know. And the whole time you're focusing on the upside, you're pitching your cool idea, but they're sitting there and they don't have space to express their concerns, which make them not want to buy into your solution because their basic questions have not been answered. Um, so this is actually a book, uh, we can also take a page from the book of marketing. When you come to a really good website, they do not sell you only on the upsides of a product. They also tell you um, um, what it's not, you know, it's a good quality because you maybe were worried that it could be cheap or um, all that kind of stuff. 
or like it doesn't oh. require a credit card right because uh, like exactly. when i see that something is free i think okay but like they are probably sneakily uh they're going to charge adding, me like after and, and sometimes they're trip. saying no extra charges so to make sure they basically it's a similar process so i'm i'm think i'm not asking them about what they want to achieve but also the constraints it should not be that i'm worried about that i make that into slides and for each of theirs their concerns i'm writing down what what am i doing to address that and then they feel very good. They feel taken seriously, not that I'm doing something over their head or their concerns are addressed. And then we're moving on to the actual solution. Mm -hmm. So basically you don't, like when you pitch ideas, you don't just focus on upsides, right? Yes. So you ask them, what yes. do you fear? Like yes. what kind of fears you have? Yes. And um, then- I, I don't you... call it fear, so they, they don't feel condescended to. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of the risk. So you want to meet them on their level. You don't want to talk down to them. You're more like peers. They know their stuff. You know your stuff. So you ask them, what are your more like concerns? Mm -hmm. Or what is something when we develop a solution you definitely want us to avoid? More like that. Like what, uh, what we should avoid, right? So yeah, what should we avoid? What, what is your... What is your worst case scenario? If like mm -hmm. if something goes really wrong, what do you definitely want to avoid? And uh, we can even make that into that is also very useful for us to know because we know what is their worst fear. We were developing, for example, um, customized OCR for incoming invoices that are being scanned, and we were thinking of of course that should give good quality, like the the text part the supplier part, it automatically gets put into SAP. And we are thinking, okay, this should be, you know, work well, high accuracy, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, you shouldn't lose an invoice. Like didn't occur to us, we would not lose an invoice, but they were like, you shouldn't lose an invoice. So basically, A, we know that they're worried about that, what is helpful information. B, we can make sure we go through each step and say, okay, what's our scenario if it fails? Let's say, we fail to read the invoice. What do we actually do like in the OCR? Does that get stuck there? Is there a retry? What if it fails permanently? So it also helps us to think of our user stories. We make this a user story. We shall not lose an invoice. And then we go through the different steps. We maybe even make a metric, incoming invoices, outgoing invoices. And we have an alert that the difference between those two should uh, be zero. And this way we can both show them. And we also made sure that we can actively, proactively avoid their worst case scenarios. Because if you just do your, their worst case scenario once, maybe even you don't realize they call you. You know, this invoice, the, the customer called, we never paid, where is it? And we were like, uh, it's laying there for two months, no one noticed, let's say, making up this, this scenario. Then you lose trust. So by, by even it's completely normal to have bugs in, a, in, in any software, as we know, you do not want to lose this trust. So by collecting these user stories early on, we can proactively avoid as many as these like worst case scenarios. And we even use that for a demo. So let's say that we're very worried about losing an invoice. So when we demo the solution to them, we can not only say, look at this amazing accuracy, but we can also say, oh no, a corrupted format invoice, what happens? And then we show them here and there, and this is how the fallback works. And it helps you with design also, because you can already think of, sometimes you forget to design 
the, the, the bad outcome, like how, how does it need manual intervention? Yes or no, who gets notified? Um, so this really helps you to, to have them put their trust into you. Okay, I've seen the, the, the worst case scenario that would not lead to any invoice missing, for example. So you said a couple of interesting things. First, you turn these uh, concerns into slides. So I imagine that maybe for each concern, you have a slide where you address. Uh, so they know that you are listening to them and yes. you want to address their concerns, right? Yes. So that's the first step, but you don't stop there. You don't stop uh, with slides. So the next thing you can do is you can take each concern, each fear, and turn it into a metric. Like for example, with these lost invoices. So you can take the number of invoices coming in and out. And then if there is a difference, you send an alert. So you turn this concern into a metric and then you also demo them. So it's not just only happy cases, but also you show the worst case scenario. You take a completely broken invoice and you try to process it through the system. And then they see, okay, this is how the system behave and they are happy and they trust your system because now they've seen bad things, right? Uh, okay, cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just thinking, so uh, how, how do we actually, with these uh, metrics, um, do they always need to, uh, to see the metrics or just demo is enough? Uh, what, what do we do next with this? Um, so uh, most business stakeholders just want to basically believe it works. Once you they believe you it works, they will uh, they will be fine. And I guess it depends on your business stakeholders. Some might want regular reporting, um, but most of the case, once you have the trust and you have established also the procedures that you will need, for example, who takes care of there's manual intervention, that will be fine. So you have trust and uh, they believe you and now you need to work on not losing it, right? Yes. And these procedures that you mentioned uh, that um, if something goes wrong, mm -hmm. how do I tell them about this? Right? How do I tell them about incidents? How I, like maybe, let's say we did lose an invoice because it was some corner case we didn't uh, think about. So how do you communicate uh, that? Uh, I would generally say transparently. Um, it depends a little bit on your stakeholders. Um, let's say uh, the, when I worked at Zalando, the business teams were more evolved about, knew more about software. There you can have uh, post-mortem reports and you can estimate the impact. Um, when you have internal teams, which are mostly used to uh, off-the-shelf software, you need to... Um, uh, communicate a, a bit differently. They usually don't want details. They just want to know that you are handling it. Um, you are handling it, and when it was resolved. But basically, you need to keep them in the loop. Right? Yes, you need to keep them in the loop. You need to find out who is responsible, and you ideally also plan for that beforehand. So, for example, what I ask my team is okay, what's the impact when we have an incident and we're out for like one minute, we're out for 10 minutes, we're out for an hour, we're out for 24 hours, let's say something terrible uh, happens. And to discuss with a stakeholder, what's the impact on their business? So we kind of have an idea about the service 
this level we need to have and our, about our alerting. Do we really need to have people on the weekend if that thing is down or really does no one care if uh, we do fix this on, if we have a slight delay as long as nothing is lost. So basically you think a bit ahead beforehand and communicate with them, sort of a service level um, for, the, for the business people but more in terms of what they understand. For example, what's the impact on your business if that thing is down? Everybody should uh, to, should be able to, to answer that. So that's, uh, you just sit with your stakeholders and say, imagine our thing goes down for one hour. Yes. How bad it is for exactly. whatever process we automate or whatever thing we're doing. Exactly. And, how, and also think about how would sort of starting up again, do you have a queue? Do you have a cache? Does it... Uh, start running from there on or does it catch up somehow um yeah so basically think a bit ahead and then the impact of incidents should be uh, minimal mm -hmm. and uh, yeah so let's say we have this uh, we agreed on this and we say okay like the system should be uh, like uh, responsive within one hour like if something happens for 10 minutes nothing that happens but it should come back to one hour. So you defined all these service level agreements yes. and you start running something and then uh, something happens, something that happens, right? It goes down, it's weekend. And then you spent, uh, I don't know, somebody had to, uh, to fix this. And what happens after that? How do you communicate uh, that uh, to the stakeholders? Um, like, is there any any special um, framework we can use for that? Um, so we internally, of course, we run a post-mortem for that. Um, how you communicate to the stakeholder, like, um, um, as I said, I think it really depends a bit on the stakeholder. Uh, our current business stakeholders, they do not care about the post-mortems. We do them for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, it depends on your environment. However, I found that the postmortems for ML are a little bit different than the regular postmortems. So um, that's also an interesting um, consideration when we how we debug these ML um, uh, applications. That there's definitely I noticed some differences to uh, let's say regular incidents which are from a non-ML component. So basically, when the system is working, but yes. it's not working correctly. So let's yes. say if we take um, a credit risk scoring project, somebody applies for a credit, and yes. then it, we know that this person will be able to pay uh, the loan back, but the system says reject, right? Yes. Without explaining anything. So yes. from the metrics point of view maybe like from standard standard operational metrics the yes. system is running it's still yeah. up but yes. it predicts garbage right yeah yeah that can happen so first you need to detect that so for example in the um in the credit example you had what is useful for cases like uh, where the model is actually affecting the outcome like fraud prediction or this credit prediction you had is have a live test set where you do not reject people, but you have it as a, let's say some people call it a small running A-B test with 1% or 2%. Other people call it a live test set. So you can use that for detection. And then you basically have to diagnose after you found out the model says absolutely no, but this person actually was a great, great credit loan taker. What do you do? So first thing, my first message to everybody is, 
please do use post-mortem format for debugging UML solutions. I've seen even very experienced colleagues jumping to complete conclusions based on uh, some data, same as sometimes our stakeholders, probably this phenomenon who leads to this and that. Um, so I can give you a very funny example that we had when I was working at Zalando because it's such a nice example for um, you know, debugging um, uh, an L algorithm. So sometimes people come to you and say, what is this? This is a bug. This is not how it should be. What did you do? And then you get the screenshot or something or someone sends you an example and you have to find out what went wrong. So we had this uh, funny example where a colleague of us, um, he went to his homepage and he saw on the men's homepage, he saw um, a bag and some woman's uh, shirt. And he told me, this is a very, very bad recommendation. What were you thinking? Uh, I'm offended. What happened? And we, okay, let's look into this, uh, what happened. And uh, so one thing you need to have, you need to have some um, tooling in place to debug your ML algorithm. So maybe you need to lock the features that arrived to be able to later check what was the input into the model. And um, it's very important also that you don't jump to these conclusions. So for example, one other thing he, he saw, so he saw the, the, the back and he saw the, the um, the woman's shirt and I was like okay that's very weird so first thing we had to check was um what did we do there interestingly enough I found out that this is not even a recommendation box this was a last scene box so, um, <laughs> so he actually saw this item previously right he, uh, I thought like he must have so let's let's use the post-mortem format to debug this, right? Okay, it's a last scene box. So A, some of my colleagues spent some time debugging our problems, not noticing it's not our box. So first thing, apply the strategy, check, check, check. Okay, then we find out it's actually not our box. So we need to have all the information to debug this. Then we checked his history. Has he seen these items? Turns out he had not seen these items. That would explain why he thought it was a recommendation when it wasn't because he was surprised to see this. He had no recollection. If we apply the post-mortem format to, okay, next step, why, why was this in his last scene box? Well, because it was in his history. Check, it was not in his history. If it had been in his history, we could have another hypothesis. Why did he not remember? Like the five why, why did he not remember? Then one reason could be that maybe this box keeps actions last seen actions from you from half a year ago and you come back and you don't remember then a product conclusion could be this box should only be so shown for five days for example this would give a very um, different way to fix the problem than uh, if you have the five why and you come to another conclusion so okay he had not seen this so we were like so why was he seeing it uh, we found out that he had a shared account with his wife mm -hmm. and uh, his wife had been browsing these items on her app. And uh, this last scene box had a cool feature. It collected desktop and app together and showed it to him. And so we can have different conclusions based on this. A, 
should we maybe have a gender tome because he is on the men's section. So maybe the last scene box should be made aware of its context and show male stuff on the male. So he, he would have only seen his stuff. Then we could think of, hmm, what if it's a shared account? So clearly multiple people browse on this. Should the last scene box behave somehow differently if we can detect that this is a shared account of multiple family members? Let's say when you think of Netflix, they found that this is a problem. So they split the accounts. So should something similar be considered? Are there other features that sort of need that or just this box? So by going through the five whys, you can um, immediately understand uh, how you might accidentally go wrong. Um, so if, yeah, I, I, ha I had a few examples that where some colleagues jump to conclusions because it's an algorithm, you just look at it and you say, ah, it's probably because of this, and they are all engineers, uh, but somehow, sometimes with ML, we don't apply a very, let's say, structured approach to really making sure to check each step. Can this be, would that make sense? How could I find that out? And maybe I need some tooling around that as well that I need to build. So I do recommend very structured approach. I recommend that you write yourself some tooling. If you, for example, need to lock the input features um, to do this kind of debugging, then you should. Um, I also recommend that you get such user feedback to debug. Interestingly, we have a lot of bugs in our ML solutions. Sometimes it's edge cases, sometimes it's whole groups of people. For example, here it's users with shared accounts. Sometimes it's people like special sizes to stay in the e-commerce area, but it could be we have that sometimes when we look into bias uh, to look how well the algorithm works on different subgroups, like does it respect all small subgroups or do, do some of these subgroups have bad experience? Basically that, get some user feedback either from colleagues. I also recommend that you try to use your own product. We know that from software engineering when you basically eat your own dog food, you really should use your own service. And, and I did find uh, quite a few bugs uh, when we were using our own service. So. Um, and maybe make a channel so internal colleagues can easily report bugs to you. Like, how would you get these bugs reported? How do you make it known that um, when you roll something out, maybe you add to your rollout announcement and all internal colleagues, if you see anything weird, here's the email that we use for bugs, like try anywhere to get these feedbacks. Uh, yeah. There was a funny story a few episodes ago. Um, we had a guest, uh, he worked at a telecom company. Uh, so the company was also selling phones and also we were doing some uh, credit scoring. So he worked there and he applied for a phone, for an iPhone, and he got rejected. So <laughs> so he basically then went to his colleagues and asked, hey, what is going on? And then he was able to debug the model. That was a... Oh, excellent. Did he find the root cause? Yeah, he was uh, on a uh, temporary residence permit. Mm. So he just moved to the Netherlands and uh, that was the reason, um, like that was the strongest feature in the model. Which is interesting because people who just moved here probably all need a new phone, mm -hmm. right? Or a new phone plan. So interesting question if that is uh, rejection worthy or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but sometimes people who uh, just move, they maybe will buy a lot of phones and go back without paying the, the credits, so. <laughs> me, like, it is interesting question. Maybe you need some other feature to, to make sure you don't catch these users. For example, I don't know, people who move in the EU, 
for work, for example, mm-hmm. probably not a problem. I'm yeah. not sure. But it's interesting question that you can then put back to the business person or you find it's a bug in your own application that you can solve. Or maybe it's not a bug. You just have to live with uh, knowing that uh, you will not get that phone. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> For, for, for him, it's probably a bug. So I'm of the really strong opinion that if a lot of users say it's a bug, mm-hmm. like maybe not for the phone case, there might be an argument for the company to trade off risk. But in general, um, I've seen a lot that some people like, not a bug won't fix. Mm-hmm. Like that is not an acceptable answer in my book for if a lot of people are complaining about this. And you will not find out if a lot of people are complaining about this or find this horrible if you do not go looking for these use cases. Mm-hmm. I tried to get my product people on board, run sort of um, uh, user-oriented debugging. So like a user comes with, with a sort of a what the fuck moment and you make this into a post-mortem regularly. That's good practice uh, to, to, to do to improve the usability and the, the awesomeness of your product. Now I'll have to beep. <laughs> ah, sorry. <laughs> Too late. The VTF moment. <laughs> You should you should hear me off video. I'm way worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you a bit about this postmortem format, and we also have a question in chat. Um, how does it look like? So you, I think one thing you mentioned is you need to ask five whys. You don't jump into conclusion immediately, yeah. so you need to spend some time trying yes. to understand what is the actual root cause. Yes. And this. Uh, f- this framework, sort of, so to say, five whys can help you that. So you yes. don't stop at the first why and uh, use this as a conclusion, but uh, you keep digging in. Yes. Is there any other, um, how to say, what else do you need to do to have this structured approach in the postmortem for a data science project? Um, so one thing you maybe need is more technical information. So sometimes you need the cookie. Sometimes a screenshot is enough. It depends a little bit on your on your domain. Um, basically, try to find a way to get the necessary information to debug the issue in your application. And maybe also an interesting hint is do not only use incidents, also use these sort of very bad user experiences that you wouldn't need. So there's no exception, nothing is in the logs. Um, so you need these user inputs, which are a little bit hard to get. Mm, like these stories of exactly. uh, bad user experiences. Yeah. Then you need the necessary information to be back. Sometimes it's a cookie information, sometimes it's a login, whatever your service is getting as relevant inputs. And yeah, I would say that's it. Otherwise, it's a typical engineering um, uh, postmortem format. So I'm borrowing always from different disciplines. So sometimes us ML people can be software engineers, but sometimes we have like physicists or econometrists, and they might not know this format. So for for these colleagues, it's it's the base. It's the typical format that. The, the software backend engineers use to debug their incidents. So we can really use that, just adapt it a little bit, and it's quite useful. Do you remember what the format, uh, how does it look like? I think I, I saw like uh, usually you have uh, some sort of time frame, 
yeah so what happened without any finger pointing on yes. blaming yes uh, so just so factual description yeah, yeah. so first you put the, all the facts yeah. first you put the facts if it's a back-end service it's like the service was down from that time to that time and in our case it might be a screenshot or it might be a return value so you put all the factual information together and then there's the investigation where you go step by step through the steps so the user saw a blouse and a bag on the front end a home and then um, why? Okay, so um, the user was, this is surprising and maybe you go through an investigation and then there's a lower part where you can add um, uh, details about um, the, the different investigation parts, for example, logs. And then there's a really important um, section which is called action points. So normally postmortems are called blameless postmortems. So you say no one is at fault. So, uh, so there's action points and these action points um, mean you try to um, make changes to your application that ensure that this kind of unfortunate chain, chain of events doesn't happen again. It can be a process change. For example, you found out um, how you work. There was no four eyes principle or you did not ha have a good unit test coverage of ed edge cases for your algorithm. Then you make these action points there. I recommend um, edge case testing, for example, or I recommend a very specific um, change. Often it's also very, um, let's say, process oriented. You do not fix only this very specific bug. You think of like this category of bugs or this, this, this kind of type of problem. Is there a way to fix that? And then you put action points. Someone from the team reviews it. It's like a code change. So they give you a review, like which action points should be implemented. And then you implement, then you make them into tickets and actually implement them. So it, it helps with a constant cycle of uh, improvements. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you. And we have a question. Um... So we talked about debugging, debugging machine learning problems and figuring out, uh, uh, okay, the model made this decision, why it happened. Um, do you know any off the shelf or open source uh, debugging tools for that? Um, yes, so there's, uh, open, it depends what you want to do with this. So there's model explanation. That's a whole hot research area that is like chap values and these kinds of libraries that you can use. Um, the, the question is usually what you want to achieve with the explanations or the debugging. Like with debugging, we want to find the root cause of a problem or an error. Usually it's not to explain the algorithm. So there is no off the shelf to explain the root cause of a bug or of a design error. So there you really just go through the format and you see what you can use to debug your own sort of logic. What you mean is probably get explanations for the model. That is often to explain to stakeholders or to reason about the internal workings of the model, which is a slightly different uh, um, purpose. Mm -hmm. So for that, you can use uh, like you Google explainable AI uh, that explains it much better the results than, than I can. Um, there's a, a bunch of libraries, but for the other thing, it's really quite uh, different. Usually the mistakes are that you didn't consider certain modeling assumptions. So you actually have to change your model or you have certain filters in place or the UI is not correct. It's much more um, broader 
And the, the, the root causes are often not the model, but a wrong assumption you made, or you did not consider um, certain inputs that have to be treated separately. It's seldomly the algorithm that was the problem. Or maybe data changed, like- Or uh, data problems, exactly. That can also be uh, an issue, yeah. Like, for example, one of the features, uh, instead of like maybe unit uh, changed, instead of kilometers, you have now meters. Yes, we actually had that in Salando. We have a colleague uh, who was working on the fraud model and on the live path, the unit of one of the very important features changed uh, from seconds to milliseconds, but not on the test data. And that completely screwed everything up. And for that, you don't need like model explanations, you need monitoring of the input data distribution and compare them between um, training and life. Uh, so you see it's, um, uh, it depends what exactly we're talking about. I hope that answers your question. Mm -hmm. the, can so we, there is a variety can, of things that we that can go wrong. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Can we go back to the to the person and see if their uh, question was so? BK sixty two. If you're listening, can you please let us know if your question was answered or not? If you want to add something, yes, uh, yeah, please uh, let us know. And then there is another question also from the same person about any of the checklist uh, you mentioned. Are there Online versions of this checklist. Uh, have you seen any of uh, those? Uh, if you, if uh, maybe I should make a blog post. So there's one checklist which is kind, kind of nice. It's a hands-on ML. They have a checklist in the first chapter. I think it's also online. Some of the editions are actually just from my personal experience, so that is not um, online yet. But I, I have seen different people have different forms of their checklists, so you can combine to make your personal best of. Yesterday, uh, not yesterday, on Monday, we talked about AI canvas, uh, like some sort of business canvas where you oh. have, uh, maybe you saw this um, canvases, or I don't know how to make it plural, but uh, like you have this um, sort of... Uh, a piece of paper where like in the center you write a business value then uh, like on the left you have data on the right and you have all these different blocks mm -hmm. and maybe it also kind of acts as a checklist because you oh, yeah. have to fill all these different uh, blocks yes. and then you can make sure that every every aspect is covered and then it can yeah that's a good point, point. Uh, um, but yeah, I also like to think about for us engineers, maybe it's even simpler if you have a, a, a list, a checklist, and then you just tick, tick, tick. Okay, here I'm missing something. Let's yeah. go and fix. Yeah, probably you should write that block. <laughs> you have to, you know, ping me on this. Yeah. No, we will have a transcription of this, and uh, yeah, maybe it uh, will be easy to then convert it. And uh, yeah, so the the the, the BK sixty two said that yes, you answered my question and you mentioned writing your own tooling. So I want to see if there is anything already that can be built on top of. Uh, it's so specific to your um, to your machine learning. Ah, yeah, okay. So that was probably just his explanation. So it's uh, my answer. Just one addition is it's so specific to what your inputs are. Probably basically make it observable, make sure you lock your features, make sure you have some way to, after the effect, find out what were the inputs, what did your models say, uh, 
and how to connect to the necessary debugging system. If you have a feature store, um, how, to, how to look up what were the features at the time or lock them, something like that. And uh, people are saying that uh, everyone is waiting for your blog post on that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, if you would like it, then uh, if, there's, if there's interest, then uh, yeah. I might need to get into that, yes. Um, yeah, we have two more questions. So uh, do you also talk to end users or just limit the research to project managers? I think we talked about that you actually talk to, uh, to end users. Yes, um, so it, mm -hmm. it depends on uh, what project I'm working on, I do. And I also do mystery shopping. So when I was working now on the credit process, so mystery shopping uh, is basically you go through the process. So I was optimizing a credit process application in my current job. So I applied for a credit. Hmm. So uh, just on check 24, and I went through the different process to see what the experience of the user is, what kind of values I have to give, what, what do the other banks are doing, like what is the, what's the flow like. So yes, speak to end users. Also speak to experts uh, about the topic because sometimes they act like a summary of a bunch of end users and they can also tell you a bit of meta information. So all of the above, yes. I hope your Shufa score wasn't affected when you did this. Uh, and this one thing I checked actually, because I was like, this should not be affected. Uh, they always promised it won't. And I checked that indeed, when we do request, it does not get worse. And I can confirm it is not affected. And for those who are not from Germany, in Germany, there is this score, uh, credit score that uh, tells how trustworthy a person is when it comes to credits. Yep. And I think it's uh, nationwide, right? Yes, I checked, I checked our database. I also got my free Shufa. You can get it once a year for free. They hide it on a subpage because they want to charge you for it. A free, free life hack of the day. You can get it on the subpage. And once a year, they send you a detailed information for free. You just have to wait and it comes in paper 14 days later. <laughs> and I checked against that. And I also had the output of all the other banks. It's quite interesting. They have different scorecards that they calibrate based on their business case. We get slightly different scores for each bank. So it was quite fascinating to to sort of reverse engineer a little bit how this works. Mm -hmm. And that person we talked about who applied for a phone, I think he also did mystery shopping without realizing. <laughs> yes, he did. See, and he uncovered a problem, yeah. And then there is a follow-up question. It actually was two questions. One, do you add your own ideas when discussing the data project? Um, to add problems, uh, to suggest problems to the stakeholders as projects, also yes because I'm just observing the space, see what other people are doing and basically try to go to the stakeholders. Do we need this? Do you think this is useful? Because it's very hard to generate these project ideas. Sometimes the stakeholders don't know what they don't know. It's like a hand egg problem. I am looking what are possible applications that other people are doing and try to see, do we have the same problem? Um, but ideally, the business people should come to you. You should not come up with a problem because you're usually wrong. You're just one person. Uh, so to think you're the user is usually wrong. Uh, but definitely just by seeing, okay, these cool ML applications are possible. Does that make sense for my company? Yes. I think Maybe the person can clarify the question a little mm -hmm. bit if yes. I, if I yes. answered it. Uh, I think it comes back to one of the checkpoints we discussed is about making the problem specific if you make ah. it specific then uh, yeah i mean then, uh, 
it's easier to talk to. Uh, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, it's uh, it can be a collaborative problem, flashing out what the problem is. We're actually very involved. I think if you're very hands off, ML really requires that the problem be very well defined. I've seen quite a few projects like fail because the ML worked, but the problem was kind of not well enough defined or it could never work because the problem was not well enough defined. And then in the end, users will kind of blame you uh, or the ML in general. So I think it's really up to us to say, this is the requirement. The requirement is that the business case be well defined. Yeah, thanks. So we have also a question about data knowledge. Uh, I'm not sure we talked about this maybe a little bit. Um, so regarding data knowledge within the company, is it a data practitioner's responsibility to educate the team on what data uh, what data is there and what problems it can solve? Wow, so you're the, the, the person asking is probably working in such an organization. I can hear the pain behind the question. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I, I feel you basically we need we need the counterpart to be well versed in data, but sometimes they're not. So what do you do? Uh, either you only take jobs in companies which are already uh, quite advanced. Usually, you st we, we still need to do a little bit of outreach and, um, let's say, educating people. I do a part of my work is sort of, let's say, community building in the company and talking to other like-minded people and try to, um, you know, have a bit of a movement of, like, data people who, like, want to work in the same direction, also get business people interested in using data. I, of course, try to spend not too much time on it, but it is, is, is it, unfortunately, at the moment, what the state of data literacy is, it's kind of a little bit part also on us to, to do a little bit of education. Or you pick a company where this is not a problem, which is few. I would say. But then you learn how to deal with this, you get experience, and then maybe if you go to a company where there is less mature in terms of uh, data yes. literacy, then you already have an experience, uh, you know yes. how things should look like, Yes. then you can share this experience yes. and help the company to move to uh, to that level of maturity. Right? Yes. So um, in general, I think we always need to have quite good um, people skills in our job because it's so uh, cross-functional. So um, the main thing I'm working in the last years is not only the technical part, but try to be better at convincing and motivating. And I think that's sometimes we don't necessarily need that or have that as engineers when we start off. And it's, uh, it's quite useful to, to invest a little bit in also for this, this data-related problems. And I have also some dirty hack tricks. If you work with like dirty data, I used to have techniques where I tried to convince people to fix data so I can use it. And that never worked because you don't use it. It's not attached to a big business case. So now, for example, I have a set of dirty hacks I just apply. For example, I start using dirty, dirty data, which mostly works, but uh, not always. And then I say, I'm using this data. Please <laughs> fix it. So there's a bunch of things you also acquire on the way, a bit of convincing, but also a bit of dirty tricks that you just bring with. Just to make sure I understand the dirty trick and I can use it uh, later. So there is a data source that is not cleaned. 
Yes. And people don't want to clean it. Yes. The ones who produce it because nobody uses it. Yes. So they say, we don't want to spend yes. our time because we yes. don't see any impact. So you start using it and then yes. you come to them and say, hey, you see, I actually use it. So how a really about nice now? product. It mostly works, but look at this very unfortunate side effect in 10% of the cases. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't used to do that. I used to speak a lot and blah, blah, blah. Nothing happens. But that was the way that got it done. Maybe yes, uh, but also like, okay, be careful with this. In general, I'm also kind of careful. So for example, every new data source I add, there's a cost to this. There's a cost of maintaining this data source, of having a new stakeholder, of monitoring it. So in general, I apply a strategy of each data source or each feature needs to prove itself to be added, especially new data sources. But like every once in a while, you really want that. It's useful. It's some sort of event that is very good. So then, yeah just to mix and match your approach. Maybe we should have a follow-up um, conversation about dirty hacks. Um, on, uh, <laughs> I, I cannot tell you I would have to, uh, you know, dispose of you afterwards. <laughs> I can imagine a title, title like uh, uh, dirty communication hacks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't try it on your colleagues. <laughs> and then we have uh, 30 people tuning in after, after 11 at night expecting a different content. <laughs> So, do you have any last words before we finish? Um, uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And if uh, anyone wants to, you know, connect more, I'm hanging out in the ML Ops channel sometimes, and also on LinkedIn, or wants to write a blog post together, or just generally chat. Uh, yeah, hit me up. Okay, great. So, because my next question was how people can find you, and you just answered. I think I ran out of questions and I just want to thank you in return for joining us today, sharing your knowledge, your uh, checklist, your one dirty hack. Maybe we will talk about others, but I think that was uh, already useful. And thanks for everyone uh, who joined and listened to our conversation, asked questions. Uh, and don't forget, we have two more talks. Uh, so tune in tomorrow and on Friday. And uh, that's all. Thanks a lot, Lina. See you. Goodbye. Have a great day. You too.